Our passage this morning is Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Wonderful God, would you open up my lips that they might declare your greatness and glory and praise, and would you open up our eyes that we may see and behold wondrous truths from your word this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. It was probably a beautiful spring day when the fall happened, when one of the most infamous days in the kingdom, up to that point for sure, but probably in history, the kingdom of Israel's days... In 2 Samuel, where David, he is firmly established as the king, and Samuel writes, or author of 2 Samuel writes in 2 Samuel 11, that in the spring of that year, the time when kings go out to battle, something strange is happening. David, the king, sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. We likely know what's coming next. Read Psalm 51. We know that there's a fall from David coming, but it's interesting that the temptation to this fall starts very cold. We think of some of sin, and especially the sin that he's going to commit uh, later on in this passage is something that's uh, it's a, a, a sin of passion. It's, it's found in a, a moment of intense desire, but really this one starts very cold and unprovoked. He's not particularly like in an extenuating circumstance that might make him think, Man, I'm so lonely here. God hasn't, he's, he's left me out on the edge by myself here. I'm, I'm lacking here. I'm tired from all the stuff. No, none of that. 
And notice as we think through this too that this is again a, a cold process. It doesn't move quickly. It's not burning hot desire. It's very cold calculated moves. Listen to the process continue. And it happened late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and said, Is this? And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness and then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Again, notice the cold, calculated moves. We're, we're going to figure this out and then, oh, I know who this is now and then I still send for her and then again, he, he lays with her and then sends her away again. And, and now he hears and gets news that this woman that he knows is Bathsheba is pregnant. And, and what does he do now? What is David's plan next? So you know the rest of the story. David's first plan, plan A is just cover up his sin. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to bring in her husband, and let's, let's try to cover this thing up. He goes to this often used path when our sin is just let's cover over it. And so he brings her husband home, and, and he says, why don't you go down to your home and lay with your wife, stay with her, so that maybe his sin would be passed over and covered by a pregnancy that seems more legitimate. Well, Uriah doesn't do that. He, he doesn't go and, and sleep in his own home. And then David's going to move to plan B. Again, very cold and calculated. Here's plan B. Or let's, let's, let's loosen him up a little bit. Let's get him drunk. Then let's send him home. And so that's plan B for David. Plan A didn't work. We'll move to plan B. It's even worse. Let's get him drunk and then send him home. And that fails as well. And David, again, in the process, moves into plan C. What's plan C? Well, I couldn't cover up my sin that way. So here's what I'll do. I'll even send the message in his own hands. Let's let him get killed. And there's plan C. And listen to what he hears in chapter 11, verse 15. The letter was sent back to him, or sent, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. There's plan C. Again, after a few nights of thoughts, hours of thought. What should I do about this? He goes to this plan. And after that, he has some time while he sends the news and hears the news back of what has happened on the battlefield. He has some waiting and he hears of Uriah's death and listen to his reply in chapter 11, verse 22. The messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers, they shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. And David says to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. Unfeeling, uncaring, blind to the reality of his own sin and the consequences of his own sin and the havoc that is now played out upon his own people. When you read stuff like this, you might have the question, is this the same guy that we just talked about in Psalm 27? 
who says, give me this one thing, God, that I might dwell in your house, gaze upon your beauty. Is this the same guy that wrote Psalm 23 that's saying, God, I'm so glad that you're with me no matter what happens in the valley of the shadow of death or if I'm I'm in the green pastures, you're, you're there? Could this be the same man that wrote both of these things? And the reality is that Scripture has this really long history of people like David who are either completely blind to their sin and don't know about it or don't care about their sin and numb to it. Think of Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis. Like, let's kill him. Oh, never mind. We'll throw him in a pit. That'll be okay. Oh, now we'll sell him. No big deal. We'll just tell his father that he's dead. Think about Aaron. He comes, and Moses has been gone for a while, so why don't we just, well, people are really wanting to worship something, so let's just throw together some gold and see what comes out. Out came a calf, so let's worship that. Or Paul who seems to be, as much as he can tell, like following faithfully after the Lord and obeying the law. And people are laying their jackets at his feet as he approves of and is working for the death of people who are following Christ. And pages are full of stories like this, pages of scripture, pages of history. But something happens in 2 Samuel. That in his radical pursuing grace, God sends a prophet, Nathan, to David. And listen to what Nathan does. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he'd bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat the morsel of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger, I didn't see before, it was so cold and calculated before, David's anger is greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. What a contrast with what we just saw. Hey, send news back to David that Uriah has died. We've, we suffered some losses at the gate. And he's like, don't let it trouble you. And here he hears of a lamb. And he's angry and says he's going to pay fourfold. Very, very contrasting with the last chapter that we just saw. And Nathan says to David, verse 7, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Something intercepts David in his blindness and his numbness to his sin. It's the word of God. What pursues him, what exposes him, what humbles him, it's the word of God through this prophet Nathan. In his sin, he would have remained blind. He would have kept going, cold and calculated and getting whatever he wants. But God's word, this living and active word that cuts all the way down to the division of bone and marrow, that kind of word, sharper than a two-edged sword, comes to him, speaks to him, exposes him, and all of that exposure to the sin that is in his heart and that he had committed is all grace. path of sin is a path that leads to death. And so for God to expose David 
is a grace and begins him and turns him moving down the path not to death but to life. Now we can so often be like David and like many others in the pages of Scripture that we can be so blind to our sin or numb to our sin. We can be happy and ignorant on the path to death. We need to hear the word of Nathan. Guess what? You're the man. Right? There's sin in us. God sends his word to rescue us from this path of sin and death. He graciously exposes us and he calls us in that place where his word exposes us to respond to him. Those words that he sends, they may sting, they may hurt, they may cut down to the core and expose some of the some ugliness that we didn't even know was that ugly. But that's his grace pursuing us. When we turn to Psalm 51, the superscription of Psalm 51 connects it to the story in 2 Samuel. It says this is the, the context for which Psalm 51 has been written in. It connects us with 2 Samuel and Nathan's confrontation of David in his sin. And in doing that, shows us one of David's darkest hours and how to respond in the darkest hours of our sin. This response in Psalm 51 to Nathan's and after Nathan's confrontation is probably the greatest psalm of repentance and confession. Now what is one to do in such immense, cold, calculated sin? What is one to do in the midst of massive, sinful failure and wickedness and gross injustice that is exposed by God's word? What do we do in that place? Well, Psalm 51 gives us a way. It connects us with a way. Here's what David does after he's confronted. He takes all of that to the Lord in prayer. Psalm 51 is a prayer that every sinner needs. It's a prayer that if we come to it as sinners and pray through it rightly, that will move us from our sin to the Lord. Move us from guilt and shame of our sin to the worship and joy of knowing God. And this is the response the Lord calls for. Psalm 51, it moves us through a few different things. I've labeled them all with A because that's what you're supposed to do. A, number one, this is one and two, is it makes us and propels us to make an appeal to God. In verses three through uh, six, we have the A of admit our sin to God. Then we'll move to ask for God's help. And finally, in the final verses, 13 through 18, advance faithfully. So appeal to God, admit our sin, ask for God's help, and advance faithfully for faithfulness in the future. This is a prayer for every sinner. In one of the darkest hours of David's life, with his sin exposed, here's what he pins, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Mercy. This is what's first out of his lips. Mercy. It seems to reveal right from the very beginning the sense of urgency and weight in him as he's stopped in his tracks and cries out to God, have mercy on me. You saw none of that in 2 Samuel early on as he's hearing the news of what's going on. He doesn't stop anything. He just keeps going. No big deal. Don't let it trouble you. Let's keep going with the battle plan and let's proceed with life here. He's stopped in his tracks after God's word has confronted him and he says, have mercy on me. He cries out though, not first, uh, my sin is so terrible. He cries out first, to God for his grace, for his unmerited favor. And he appeals to this God based upon God's character. He says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. 
according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. He comes to God with no entitled claim before God, with no right of standing before God. The only thing he can do is throw himself down before him and says, you're going to have to be gracious to me. Have mercy upon me. And he appeals to that grace and mercy with no right of his own, but only appealing to God's good character. And this is character that's revealed character of God. In Exodus chapter 34... It says, as God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means clear the guilty. The words you might have noticed have some match here in verse 1 of Psalm 51. The words for mercy and grace and love that are found in Exodus 34 are the same words that are found in Psalm 51. And this isn't the only overlap that you see in verse 1 from Exodus 34 to chapter 51 of the Psalms. Right? He says, blot out my transgressions at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Those sound familiar too, right? There's another overlap. These Six words overlap, this mercy, grace, and love, and then sin and transgression and iniquity. They all overlap. He's appealing to this God because he knows his character and what he's revealed about himself. But here's what he says about himself. Sin, sin, sin. He admits his sin. He appeals to God in his sin and says, blot it out, wipe it away. Like, wipe the record away of my sin, Wash it, launder it, right? There's a stain in it. You're going to need to wash it. Cleanse it. This is ritual type cleansing. Like if you had leprosy, you would need that kind of cleansing in order to go to the temple and worship God. Blot and wash and cleanse. These are words of forgiveness. They are words that connect in Exodus chapter 34. And so sin, sin, sin are met with wash, wash, wash in verses 1 and 2. And this is where we begin with our sin. This is where we start in our appeal to God. We take all the sin, sin, sin in our hearts, we take it to God, and we appeal to God for His grace and His mercy as ones who have no right to it, who have no entitlement before Him, have no right to any standing. To demand some sort of grace or mercy or forgiveness from God is to misunderstand what those things are. We need to know that when we come before God, there's not one thing that's deserved from Him except for His judgments. This is why it's a good way to start our appeal to God to say, have mercy on me, O God. And what David makes known about himself is my sin, sin, sin. And he asks God to meet him in the place of his sin with what? Wash, wash, wash. He knows he has no standing. He knows he is needing something from God. And he asks for this according to his character. The need is for God to be merciful and gracious to him. And he knows that this is a God who's full of mercy and grace. He's full of steadfast love. He needs God to forgive his iniquity and transgression and sin. And he knows that this is a God who will do these kinds of things. There is such a God because he knows about him in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 34, that was not just a special revelation for Moses. That wasn't a unique secret that David got in on here in Psalm 51 or in 2 Samuel. This is God's revealed character. This is what he's like. 
So that when we have sin, 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 and we do, we can be reminded of the revelation that God has given us of who he is and what he's like. He has revealed his character. This is not something that God was. This is not something that God was in in this one moment for David or for Moses. This is who God is. This is what he's most like. He is this God who is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 51 wasn't written for David's benefit alone. He isn't appealing to these things so that he alone could be the one that takes this path. He is saying that if there's anyone who has sin, 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 here's where you come. You come to this God who has been revealed to you as this God who is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love. And in his raw response to his sin and confrontation, he's showing us the way. We all have sin, sin, sin. Where are we going to take it? There is only one source that we can take it to that can be what Exodus chapter 34 says of the Lord. There's only one source that is going to be merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And here's what David is showing us. We can appeal to this God in our sin, 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 not because of something in us, but because of who he is and what he's like, because of his character. This is the right place to start. This is the right way to make our appeal in our sin. Because of who he is, we cast ourselves upon him in our sin. So start here, appeal to God. And so we need to ask the question, are are we turning there? Is that what we're doing with our sin? Are we appealing to God in our sin to wash it because of who he is? His appeal with those repeated words, my sin, 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 sin and transgression and iniquity, can be explained by the admission of the immensity and greatness of that sin. And so he removed from appealing to God to admitting sin. Verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What he was once blind or numb to, he no longer is. In fact, he says it's ever present in me. He knows it. It's everywhere. It's staring him in the face all over the place is what he's getting at in verse 3. It's clearly pressing in on him because through three verses, he's admitted, said in some capacity, my sin already five times now for three verses. Five times. Mine. He owns it. Let's point out that he doesn't say, not my struggle, not my like, like problem, fill in the blank. He says, my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. He calls it what it is, and that is saying, before the Lord, I know how to identify this. This is sin. He makes a clear admission of sin. He admits that his sin is ever before him, and he knows that means that it is also before God. Verse 4 He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, if you look back at 2 Samuel, chapter 12, when Nathan has confronted David, listen to some of the words that he uses. He says to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. And we look at Psalm 51 and we're seeing David has heard those words because his words in Psalm 51 are matching some of the words that he was confronted with from the prophet Nathan. When he calls his actions, you you have done what is evil in my sight. You have despised my word. You have despised me in 2 Samuel. You've done what's evil in my sight, and here's what David's saying, I've done what's evil in your sight. Indeed, I've not just done what's evil, I've despised you. And verse 4 is an important response to God's word. 
that he gave through the prophet Nathan. Because if we think back on 2 Samuel and how Nathan approached this and what he said to David and how David responds, it helps further explain verse 4 when he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Because when we look at 2 Samuel, it's like, has he only sinned against God? We would say there's other parties that he have certainly be involved in this that he's sinned against, right? Certainly he's sinned against Uriah. Certainly he's sinned against Bathsheba. And here's what David is not saying in Psalm 51. He's not saying that I didn't sin against Bathsheba and I didn't sin against Uriah and that's not important and doesn't matter. He did sin against them greatly. And more, we could add into that, right? Not just Uriah and Bathsheba, but, but think about the people of Israel, the army. Like, he sinned in all kinds of ways here. He's not saying that doesn't matter. He did sin against them, and greatly. What he's saying here in Psalm 51 is that actually it goes even further and deeper than that. What he's saying is that my sin was not just a sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and others that my sin was also and ultimately, primarily, first and foremost, sin against God. And that's all sin. That's not just his sin there. That is all sin. He is saying that his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, his sin against the people of Israel, all of it was exactly what Nathan said of it. It was all of it a despising of the word of God, a despising of God himself. You, you remember Nathan's story, right? The rich man, he comes and he takes a lamb from the poor man and David gets so upset. Now, in the story, it's very interesting. Why does David get so upset? Why is he so offended and angered in the story? Because it's his kingdom, right? He's the king. He's the one that's over this place. And how dare a king let something like that go on against him in his land? It wasn't just a sin against the poor man in his eyes. It was a sin against him. I'm not going to let that go on in my land. Think about David's story now. Yeah, there was other sins going on. Bathsheba and Uriah and others. This is the Lord's land. These are the Lord's people. And so, yeah, there might be sin going on down there, but ultimately that's a sin against me, the high king, the Lord of all things. So at its deepest level, all sin is sin against the Lord. And in some way, all sin is a despising of the Lord himself. It doesn't get any deeper than that. And David says, verse 4, that's me. I admit this, against you and you only I've sinned. It's that bad. I've despised you. He admits, verse 4, you will be justified in your words and, and blameless in your judgment. Whatever verdict that you give to me is deserved. Whatever sentence of condemnation, it's deserved and it's right. You'd be just in it. He owns full responsibility for his sin. Not just sins that are against others, but his sin, not just against image bearers, but the image, his sin against God himself. And he makes no attempt here to, to take the often used path that we would use to diminish his sin, to rename his sin, to downplay his sin, to minimize his sin, to shift the blame of his sin, to divert attention away from it, to excuse it or defend it, and all the other paths that are all too familiar to us. Instead, he charts a better path that we can follow as well. A path that all of us should take in our sin. He's appealed to God, now he just admits his sin and says, yeah, it's that bad. He does the opposite of minimize it. He actually takes it to its uh, furthest degree and says, I've sinned against you, God. He admits his sin, not just as evil against others, but as evil against God. Like, if you drive your car and you run over my yard, like, tear it up a little bit, like, I might be angry 
but I don't know that I'd do all that much, right? But if you drive your car and you run over my child, like, it's a bigger thing. Much bigger thing. Why? Because the object offended, I mean, we're not even talking in the same degree here. Yard, person. And we need to remember, one author says this, Sin must be measured in the depth of its offense against the splendor of the one it offended. And if God be so infinitely glorious, more glorious than all the stars of the galaxies combined, then the weight of our sin, and we could say in there, any millisecond of sin, any single sin, not just, oh, David and Bathsheba kind of sin, David and Uriah kind of sin, any sin, if it's against an infinitely glorious God, then this embodies evil of the highest order. So for David to say, verse 4, against you and you only I have sinned, to mention God and not Bathsheba is not to neglect that sin and, and the ways that it has wreaked havoc in their lives and in the lives of Israel. It is to say, I've done much worse than just sin against them. And we have to recognize this as well. That is part of the confession and admission of our sin, that we recognize that at the deepest level, my sin is against God. We can and feel and should admit and feel the sense that, verse 4, against you and you only. Like if you were the only one that had anything against me, that would be far more than I could bear. Against you and you only, I have sinned. This means our sin is actually way worse than we think because we have an infinitely holy and glorious God. Amen. And so let's ask, are we confessing that kind of way? Are we admitting sin to God in this way? The, the admission of our sin as against God and, and the confessing of our sin to Him is a way of coming to Him and saying, yeah, any condemnation and verdict that you bring against me is actually right. Regardless of what David and, and, or the human courts of Uriah and Bathsheba and all the people around me, the priests and prophets that you would bring to me, regardless of what any of them say, if you should bring a, common, a verdict of, of condemnation against me, it would be completely just and right because I've sinned against you. I've offended you. And David's admission of sin goes deeper than just a one-time thing. And ours must too. Because he recognizes, yeah, I've sinned against God, but there's also a deeper problem here. Verse 5. I haven't just sinned against you, God, one time, but I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's, he's not talking about something fishy happening with his mom and his dad when he was conceived. He's saying that from conception... I had a sinful nature. I had a heart that was bent away from the Lord and toward myself and toward sin. He states the problem clearly. I have a sinful nature. He doesn't excuse his sin and say, well, we just got to blame it on the sinful nature that I had from birth. No, he's owned his sin very clearly already in verse 4. But he does say it is rooted way down deep in my nature. He's not just saying, I have sinful behavior, but I have a sinful nature. He's not saying, uh, I've sinned, or I'm a sinner because I've sinned, but I sin because I am a sinner. This is who I am. He, he's recognizing what Paul would say later in, in Romans chapter 5. Paul says this, just as sin came to the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. They have a, all men have a sin nature. Death has spread to all. Sin nature has spread to all after the fall. He says in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and for life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right? Adam, the fall, and now since the fall, everyone after Adam is a sinner. That's their nature. That's what they're like. And he doesn't excuse his sin by this, but he just says this is the origin, and this is the reality, that God, I did this, and I have a sinful nature. And what? God's standard was he delights in truth in the inward being. And his standard is the same. And so there he knows, I have a problem from the start. God desires truth from the inward being where the inward being is corrupted with sin. And that's a problem that no one can fix. And David admits this before the Lord. Are these the things we're admitting before God? I, I am a sinner. I have sinned. And there's a problem. You desire truth. Your standard is truth and it hasn't changed and so I'm gonna need something to fix this. David, what he does with this, he, he takes this problem to God and he moves from his admission of sin to asking for God's help. He asks for the kind of help that only God can give. So he's appealed to God, he's admitted, now he's asking, verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The word purge is a, another way to translate that is desin me. Un, undo it. Desin this in me. Hyssop was used to, to sprinkle water on lepers that they might be ceremonially and ritually clean. And, and so when you have this ritual cleansing, then you could go to the temple and you could then make sacrifices again. He says, Purge me, desin me, wash me. Take out the stains of sin in me. Only if God does that will he be what he says here, whiter than snow. There's no other way for that to happen. And so that's why he says, you better wash me so that I can be this. There's no other way for this. Let the bones that you have broken, let, let them rejoice, he says. Let me hear joy and gladness. In other words, I think what he's asking is relief from the immense sorrow and weight and toll of his sin in his own life. The, the guilt or the toll of God's discipline that has weighed so heavily. He says, uh, give me relief from that. But he goes back again to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is sin. And so in verse 9 he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. The, the face there reminds that his sin is ultimately against God. And that he needs God to blot it out. God, in other words, God is the one who needs to act most in this situation for anything good to happen with David. God must do this. Because sin at its deepest level is against God, only he is the one who can actually hide his face. Only he is the one who can actually blot it out. There is no path to restoration, no path to forgiveness apart from this. And David asked for it. And are you asking for help in your sin? The kind of help that only God can give. Are you hanging out in prayer, the, the help wanted sign, because you can't do it on your own? Are you asking God in prayer to do what only he can do and to blot out your sin because it's so deep-seated and so much of an issue before him that he's the only one that can fix it? David's not asking God for half-hearted help. He's not asking for something that just goes a little ways. He's asking for deep cleansing. That is the path. That's the things to ask for. He's not asking, you know, you give me a quick rinse and then we'll be done. And let's move on. He's not saying, you know, we use the, the vacuum cleaner, like you, you sweep up the carpet, you get all kind of the, the dry stuff out. He's saying, you know, get the steamer out and you suck up all the stuff. Have you ever done that? It just never ends. It's like, 
never have carpets ever again because there's just no end to the dirt that just keeps coming out. And that's what he's asking for God to do. Keep sucking all of it out of there over and over again. Sanitize this thing all the way down to the fibers of my being. That's what he's wanting. We shouldn't ask for half-hearted help from God for a deep-seated problem of sin. Amen. And we shouldn't ask half-heartedly either. But sincerely with a sense of the gravity of our sin, that it's against you only, it's before your face, and my, my sin is before your holy face. And we ask sincerely because of that. This is how to go to God in our sin. This is how to ask for his help. Now through verse 9, here's what we've seen, is that we've seen mostly, when he's talking about a sin, mostly kind of a negative uh, request. Blot it out. Wash it. Take it away. Right now, in verse 9, kind of the end of verse 9, and moving forward in verse 10 and following, it shifts. Notice this, in verses 1 through 9, the words for sin was used 12 times. God wants. And here's the beauty, verses 10 through 19. Sin, two times. God, six times. Like, I think that God intends to communicate something even through the structure of this song. That the very structure of Psalm 51 is telling sinners like David, like me, like us, that you can move from sin, sin, sin to God. That it doesn't have to remain in verses 1 through 9 where we're talking about sin and it's all over the place and barely can even get to God. You can move to 10 through 19 where we can only talk about sin just a little bit because we have to still deal with that, but we have God in front of us now. The structure, I think, is telling us that. And how do we do that? How do we move from sin to God? Well, we appeal to God, we admit that sin, and we ask for his help. His asking for help hasn't stopped in verse 9. He keeps going in verse 10. All the way through verse 12 is the, the A of ask for his help. So we appeal, we admit, and we ask for help. In verse 9, it, it serves as another shift too. And in verses 7 through 9, he was asking mostly for God to deal with some stuff in the past, his sin, blotted out, wash, cleanse. And now he's going to move to looking to the future in verse 10 a little bit. He says... Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verses 10, 11, and 12, they all start with this me, you know, do something in me, and then they have this spirit in there, and then me again. So there's a tie between all of them. They're all connected, and all of them are asking for restoration. God, restore me. He has a past that God has to forgive. God has to blot out, but he wants to move forward with the Lord. And he needs the Lord's help in that too. With a sinful nature, how is he going to keep from going back to verses 1 through 9? It's a good question for all of us. With a sinful nature, how are we going to keep from going back to verses 1 through 9? Well, we're going to ask for God's ongoing help. He says, verse 10, created me a clean heart. Creates an interesting word. It's used in Genesis. It's the word that's used in the Hebrew Old Testament for God's creative power and actually exclusively of God's creative power. That word for create is only ever has God as the subject in the scripture. It never has another subject. No one else can do what he's asking to be done here. Only God can do that. So he's asking for it. Do the thing that only you can do. Renew a right spirit within me. He wants a, a spirit set on steadfast love for the God and love for God, faithfulness to God. He wants a righteous spirit, one that is pointed in the right direction always. He asks God in these requests 
to transform the very core of his being. He's asking, God, transform my inner man. Uh, I want to be a new person on the inside. Like he knows that the, the heart and the mind, the spirit, these are the things that the, out of those things flow the rest of life. This is the spring of life. And he's asking God in those places, transform me. Not just alter my behavior. Give me a few quick fixes. Change me all the way down. That's what he's asking. Why? Because he wants something other than his sin. Verse 11, he says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's what he wants. He wants not just his sin. Like he, He's moving past that. He, I want you. Like here, we're back in Psalm 27 a bit here, right? This is what I desire. I want you. And then he speaks here in verse 11. He's speaking practically, not just theologically. So what he wants is the presence of God and the empowerment of God. David's concern here is not, as ours likely could be when we come to this, it's not about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, whether he can come or go. It's not his concern here. His concern here is the enjoyment of the Holy Spirit and its empowerment for him as the king of Israel. Right? Surely in his head as he writes these words is the story and the illustration and example of King Saul who was the king before him. You know what happened when Saul was anointed king over Israel? He received the Spirit. And Saul didn't walk faithfully before the Lord. He walked in his own ways. And so he was rejected as God's king. And when he is rejected and David is anointed, listen to what the scripture says. 1 Samuel chapter 16 says, Then Samuel, he took the horn of oil and he anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord, what does it do? Rushes upon David from that day forward. All right, look in verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's what David knew. Like, Saul is walking in disobedience. That's why God's anointing me as king. And I receive the Spirit, and the Spirit leaves him. That's what he knows. And he's saying, don't let that happen to me, God. I don't want to go that way of Saul. I want to continue in your presence. I want to continue being empowered to lead your people forward as your anointed king. That's what he wants. And so he asked God to do what only God can do. And he asked God to give him this future help and help that only he can give. And so he asked, verse 12, Restore me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now after verse 11 and thinking about the Holy Spirit and coming and going and all those things, it's easy to kind of pass over. But here we need verse 12. This is a crucial part to overcoming sin and temptation here. Verse 12 is crucial to overcoming sin and temptation. If he's going to move forward with the sinful nature and overcome sin and temptation, verse 12 is crucial. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Notice those words, joy and willing spirit. In other words, he's saying, I want to want something more than I want my sin. I, I want a greater affection at work in me so that I can overcome my sin. Amen. He doesn't say, you know what? I, I've seen my sin. It's really bad. I'm going to ask some things for the Lord and now I'm just going to have to suck it up. And even if I want to look at Bathsheba and I want to kill some people in my army that I don't really like and then maybe I want some of their stuff too, like I'm just going to have to suck it up and move forward. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what? I have sin and temptation. I have a sinful nature. I'm just going to have to be more disciplined in my life. I'm just going to have to get my stuff together. No, what he's saying is I need new affections. God, turn my heart towards you. 
He recognizes that his affections within him uh, show some disorder. They're disarrayed in different parts. And he says, that won't lead to a life of continued faithfulness before the Lord if I continue this way. So God, would you please reorder those things? Give me a greater affection. And what is his affection that he wants here? He wants the Lord. Any who desire to walk faithfully, to walk righteously before the Lord, are going to need not just remorse for their sin and regret, not just greater discipline in their lives, although those things might be good and helpful, they're going to need a greater affection. One for, you know, pastor of old said this, we have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart, there's the sinful nature heart, by any innate elasticity of its own, to cast the world away from it. We can't do it on our own. Our hearts are never going to come up with this. And so what does it need? It's the heart is not so constituted. And the only way to dispossess it of an old infection for, you know, Bathsheba, things of the world, any temptation we can have, the only way to dispossess it of an old infection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Amen. We need God to uproot affections in our lives, uproot some things and replant some things. We need both of those. Blot out sin Restore me to the joy of my salvation. Wash me and, and make sure you renew a right spirit within me. Both of those things, and part of that renewal and restoration is a renewal and restoration of reordered affections. In verses 10 through 12, here's what they make clear, that David is totally convinced of his own inability to do this. He cannot do it on his own. And it also shows that he trusts and relies upon God to do the very thing that he's asking. That's why he's asking God. That's what our asking for God's help should reflect. Our own inability to do these things and yet our complete reliance upon God to do the things that we're asking. Like that's what our asking should do. Showing our need, knowing our need, and looking to God to fulfill us and change us and make us what he wants. To ask like David for God to do what only he can do about our sinful past and to help for the future, that's the only way to move forward in a way that's faithful. And so we say, restore, God, reorder these things, fix what's broken in us. And only if we do that, only if we ask for those things, we only do that if we know our own inability to do them on our own. That the answer is not our own discipline and sucking it up and doing better. That the answer is God reordering things in our hearts. And if we really believe that, we will ask God for it. Amen. So are you convinced that you need God to do what only he can do? convinced enough to ask him to pray for these things? Do we know John 15, 5 says, apart from me you can do nothing? Do we kind of think it's some things and you take some things and I'll take some? Now, if we're convinced that apart from me you can do nothing, then we're going to spend a lot more time asking him for things. God, you're going to have to take care of the past. It's brutal. You're going to have to blot it out. God, I can't move forward. I have a sinful nature. I'm going to do this again. You're going to have to change my affections. That's what we should be asking for. And with God's help of restoration, David doesn't stay put, but he continues to envision what it would look like to, here's the next A, to advance faithfully. Verses 13 through 17, advance faithfully. Verse 13, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. Right? He, he's saying, I, want, I don't want to just chart the path for me. I want to chart the path out for the people of God. Here, here, I'll chart the path for sinners. And they blow it big like I have done it. Here, I want to be restored so that I might chart the path for them for your honor, God. And man, is he qualified, right? <laughs> because his sin was so terrible. It's like, you're qualified. You can understand how big, how it is to mess up really big. And yet, 
his repentance is also present too, isn't it? Here's a man who's qualified to say, chart the path out for sinners for how we move from our sin to God. And he's doing it. And he's saying, God, restore me so that I might do that. But verse 13 is still contingent because his sin, the sin of premeditated murder, calls for the death penalty. Like he looked at the Old Testament law, and again, if God's judgments are just, which he's already affirmed and admitted, then what he deserves is to be killed. And so he says here, yeah, I want to teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you, but I need your deliverance for that. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Notice the contingencies there. He knows he deserves death and so he just casts himself upon God. Deliver me, deliver me. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. He asked God to deliver because that's what he needs in order to move forward at all, to advance at all, that he might advance faithfully, chart a path, that he might advance in worship, that he might live faithfully before the Lord. He's going to need God to deliver him because he deserves the death penalty. But he's saying, deliver me, and, and here's this response that's already welling up in his heart, and I will respond with praise, knowing, verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. He's not saying, you know, I know, God, you don't want obedience to the sacrifices that you commanded in your law. We're going to talk about that in verse 19. He does want that. There should be the response of that from his people in the Old Testament. But he knows that God wants a lot more than that. Verse 17, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. The one author says that the word contrition describes the spiritual condition of one whose self-will and rebellious attitude has been broken. The Hebrew word behind it means crushed. There's the sacrifice he knows God wants. Me crushed. My rebellious spirit crushed. My, my sinful heart crushed. My sinful attitude crushed. God wants true repentance. He knows that God wants true repentance. He, he wouldn't be satisfied with just outward behavior modification. He says that, that could be there and that might be in obedience to your commands, but I know you want more than that. You want me crushed. You want me coming before you repentant and humble and ready to receive from you, looking only to you, because if I don't get something from you, then I will be crushed as well. He wants to look only to God, to receive from God. And then what he wants when he's delivered is he wants to lead this path forward. He does this knowing that if God helps me, then there's no way this could be stopped. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. You hear the assurance in his voice in verse 17? Why is he so assured of this? Because he knows this God. Exodus 34, maybe still rattling through his mind. This is God who's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He receives the people who come to him. He's seen it in Israel's history over and over again. They keep blowing it over and over again. And he keeps looking back and like, why didn't you wipe them off the face of the earth? Why did you keep delivering them? Because you're this kind of God. You're merciful and gracious. Look at the words in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 again. Listen to what Nathan says in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord... And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David heard and he knew that what he says in verse 17 is true. 
that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. He'd experienced it. And so he brought not an offering of bulls and rams, he brought the offering of himself crushed before the Lord so that he could advance faithfully and chart a path for other sinners as well. Now let's ask, did he advance faithfully? Did he, did he open his mouth and sing praises to the Lord? Did he, did he chart a path? Did he have some ongoing obedience before the Lord in his life? Like, did the Lord open his mouth? And we'd say, absolutely he did. Like, doubtless you came in this room, and if you know something about David, you know something about David and Bathsheba. Mostly, like, that that's, comes quickly to our minds when we think about David and his massive failure. It was notorious for him. Like, he is notorious for his failure and his sin. But you know what he's also notorious for? His praise. Like, we have a book that has all kinds of psalms of praise that have his name on them. He wasn't just known for his sin. God had opened his lips that he might sing forth the praises of God. He was also known for his praise. And this is what God offers to sinners. Our sin might be awkwardly or maybe inordinately notorious. And we might be known for our sin. But if we come to the Lord crushed, then we can know that a broken, crushed, contrite heart God will not despise. And we can take the path that David take and make known not just our sin, but our repentance. Not just our uh, failure, but our praise. We might be notorious for our sin, but let's not be notorious only for our sin. Before the Lord, let's bring our contrite heart, lay it down before Him, and let's be known for opening our lips to singing forth the praise of God. Your sin might be great. God's mercy can be more. Your sin might be really notorious in your life. It might seem to follow you everywhere you go, that every room that you walk into, they whisper the sin about you. Don't let that be the last thing they whisper. So are you looking to advance faithfully after your sin and depending upon God for it? Amen. Saying, God, deliver me and open up my mouth. Knowing that he doesn't despise those who come to him crushed. And this advancing faithfully is not just for David alone. He looks outside himself and he prays, lastly, in verses 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. And then bulls will be offered on your sacrifice. Like verse 17 and other places make clear that God was never desiring just outward behavior and just moving through the motions, some sort of ritual worship. That's never what he was after. Just go through the formality of sacrifice and worship. He never was after that. God delights in the right kind of sacrifice. And the right kind of sacrifice, the right response to God is a broken and contrite heart that then walks forward in obedience to God, that, that lives out the commands of God. In our sin, what's the right response to God? For David and for the Old Testament, in their sin, what was their right response? A contrite heart and bringing their sacrifice, their blood sacrifice for their sin. That was the right response. When the Lord does what he's asking him to do in verses 18 and 19, builds the walls, pours out his goodness, as David asks, what's the right response that he wants for? Not just, again, outward things. He wants a heart that's freely giving these offerings to the Lord in praise to him. That's the right response to God. That's what he's always been after. Make no mistake, God intends for the right response of contrition and praise always across the pages of Scripture. That has always been what God has been after. He wants repentance and he wants worship. He's not letting you wallow in your sin without turning in praise and worship to God. That's always been his intention. And it's why this psalm is here. Amen. 
And Psalm 51 is a prayer that every sinner needs. And God graciously gives it. And as sinners, this morning, we can appeal to God knowing his character. We can appeal knowing not just Exodus 34, but knowing more of the mercy and patience that we find in the person of Christ Jesus. We can appeal to God's character in our sin, knowing that God has demonstrated his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. We can know the mercy and patience of God and appeal to him, knowing our, our prayers could be heard before this God. Knowing, like at the cross, Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. But there was another man at the cross. He was saying, we deserve what we're getting, but he doesn't. We can say that before God, knowing that He is a God that in that place can meet us and say, today you'll be with me in paradise. As sinners, we can admit our sin to God, knowing that what 1 John says, if we come to God, that He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it doesn't stop there. He says, if you think that you're without sin, then then you have a problem. You make God out to be a liar. But, verse 1 of chapter 2, if anyone does sin, here's what we do have, sinner. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, the sins of the whole world. We can remember in our sin as we admit it that that, that Jesus told this parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. One is saying, I'm glad I'm not like other people, and one's just beating his chest saying, have mercy on me, O God. And only one goes away justified. One goes away with right standing before God. And if we pray out our prayer of admission of our sin, that we need mercy from God, we can go away with the same realization. That's the prayer that God hears. As sinners, we can ask God for his help, knowing that Jesus would never leave us as orphans, that he always has promised, like, Not only am I going to be with you to the end of the age, but I'm going to send my very presence to dwell in your midst, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Here's what is said of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Listen to verse 14. It says that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself is interceding for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And we know that the Spirit is not just given and taken away, that if we have the adoption as sons, like that is done deal. The adoption is not going to, you're not going to go back on it. We're welcomed in with as sons, and not just as sons, but those who have the, the full inheritance already given to us in Christ Jesus. As sinners, we can ask for him to help us advance and walk faithfully, knowing that in Christ Jesus now, we're not the old person anymore. We're a new creation. The old has passed away. It's dead and gone, and the new has come. We're not our sin any longer. We might be known for that, but that's not the only thing we're going to be known for in Christ Jesus. We know that there's ongoing work, but Philippians 1.6 says, oh God, this is the one who's going to complete the work that he began in us. And if we know that, we can keep lips that are supplied and open with his praises because he started something and he's going to continue it out until it is completed. These are lips surely in this earth that are still being sanctified, purified, and prepared for the day that they will be opened one day and never shut again with praises to God. And today, with lips that might need some more work in Psalm 51, we can chart this path with great hope. We can crawl into Psalm 51. If that's where you're at in the midst of your sin, crawl into these words of Psalm 51 and go through them until you can get on the other side where you're thinking about Revelation 21 and a new heavens and new earth. Now, one of the ways that we do this together is that we confess that we're sinners and that we need God in a supper. 
We say that, that we were, things were so bad, our sin was so bad that God himself had to die. And we also believe that God was so good, so loving, that he was willing to die so that we might have eternal life. That's the Lord's Supper. We're proclaiming that in the Supper. If you take the Supper, that's what you're proclaiming. Christ's death has covered your sins. You have forgiveness in him, and you look forward to him coming and finally and fully completing what he started. If, if that's you, if you believe that, all you have is Christ. Take this meal. If not, let's start back at Psalm 51 and go back to the beginning and confess sin and then we'll share what the good news of the gospel is, that you can have forgiveness in Jesus. But don't take this meal. It's a family meal. So if you're family, if you've trusted in Christ, come and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, when we read your word, we are reminded that things are worse than we think they are with us. We are reminded that we walk into a building and we praised you with our lips, but our hearts can often be far from you. We've used, we confess. We've used these same lips to curse, to curse others, to lie. And God, we need your help. We, as we saw in our scripture today, you are the only source that can, we can take our sin to. And so we turn to you. We know that, well, maybe we don't know, remind us that our culture would love in any way possible to minimize what our sin is, calling it a problem or a shortcoming or a hang-up. But it's sin and it's inexcusable. So we turn to you. We confess that when we fall into that mindset, that it's something less than sin, that it also leads to us not depending on you and thinking we can fix it ourselves or cover it up like David tried with our meager resources that we have on this earth. God, our sin that has hurt others and ourselves is primarily against you. So we fall on your mercy and we ask for you to de-sin us. Purify us with hyssop. God, sinners then will learn from us. Let our bones that you break rejoice. Let us move from our sin, sin, sin to our God. Dispossess our hearts from our deadly affections and reorder them. Make us a new creation like you did when you breathed out a universe. Hear our praises as we sing them to you. Let us be known not only for our sin, but also that everyone who knows us knows that we believe your mercy is more. We pray these things. Because of your son. Amen.